Hi, I'm Katrina Gentile, and welcome to Invested in Our New Reality, Invest Ottawa's podcast for business leaders and entrepreneurs. This season, we're focusing on the thriving automotive tech industry here in the nation's capital. On today's episode, we're talking to Andrew Miller. He's the senior leader of Urban Solutions with Hatch and a global expert on automated driving who helps clients build innovative, sustainable, and effective urban transport systems. Andrew, Hatch is a global company that has built a strong relationship with Invest Ottawa. But for the benefits of our listeners who don't know about your organization, can you describe how Hatch helps clients? Certainly, I'd be pleased to. So Hatch is a consulting firm. And to the best of our knowledge, it's the world's largest privately held such firm. We have 9,000 employees across every planet, not including Antarctica. But we are active in every part of the world. We are trying to do a lot of things. The best way to describe what we do is through reference to our manifesto, which is like a vision statement, but it's so much more. It describes our vision, our mission, our values, and our personality. And I won't tax you with all of it. The part that I would highlight for you today is part of our mission statement Our exceptional diverse teams combine vast engineering and business knowledge, applying them to the world's toughest challenges. And for us, that's not an empty commitment. We really do seek to address the world's toughest challenges. Certainly, urban transportation is one of those things. So it certainly keeps me busy. So what exactly are you focusing on when it comes to urban transport systems? Is it the public transportation? Is it infrastructure? Is it automated vehicles or everything and above? It's everything and above. Uh, I work on all of those things you just described. Public transit, driverless cars, integration of housing and mobility, the infrastructure necessary to allow these things to flourish. If there's a common thread between what I do... It is thinking about how to move people in cities better. We can be more precise about this. In our view, a thriving city is one where it's possible that for any given point, we can maximize the number of trips that can end there. So any trip that someone wants to take to that place or from that place, they can take that trip. And the trip should not merely be possible, but it should be fast, reliable, safe, environmentally sustainable. And let's not forget, cheap. A good system is, you can't get all of those things, but a good system is one that attempts to approach the maximum of all of those things. But that creates a further difficulty, which is that it's a system. It's not merely a mode. It's incorporation of a variety of modes into one network. So you have to think about walking trips and cycling trips, but also transit trips, You have to think about ride-hail vehicles, whether those of today, which have drivers, or those of the future, which may not. You have to think about micro-mobility, like e-scooters or hoverboards. You even now have to think about air taxis. So our goal is not to promote any one of these technologies and say that's the future. It's to think about how to build an infrastructure and a system that allows any sort of these trips to succeed. Some of those require more effort than others, but that's the job. What is the biggest challenge for you? So a wise person uh, has a proverb, and I'm shamelessly stealing that proverb, (laughs) taking it for myself. But that proverb is, I don't 
hate cars. I love options. And if I was going to say what the problem with urban transport in Canada is today, it's that our cities don't seem to love options. They overprovide for some choices and they underprovide for others. This is going to go out across the world and across Canada. We can point to a few Canadian cities as examples of what I'm talking about. Toronto, where I work, for instance, we overprovide for cars, any car trip you want to take. We overprovide for transit service if you're going to the central business district, like the downtown subway. We underprovide for bikes. There are some bike infrastructure, but it's pretty fragmented. And we ban scooters outright. Like we just we just don't have them, not publicly, not shared, and theoretically, not even for private citizens. Well, that is uh, lighted constantly. A lot of our listeners are going to be in Ottawa. Ottawa does better on scooters. And regional cycling is better because the green belt that surrounds Ottawa, there's lots of opportunities for biking into the central core from the regions, but there's not a lot of opportunities to cycle in the downtown. And the less said about the success of the new LRT network, the better. Vancouver has got the only driverless transit system, the heavy rail transit system in North America with its SkyTrain, which is great but it also over-indexes on cars, which is not great. And then there's no Canadian city, almost no cities in the world are doing well at accommodating ride rail trips in a sensible way and or preparing for driverless cars and everything that they're going to do for us. So I would say that a successful urban transport system, we don't have a uniformly glowing one here in Canada. It would be one that improves access for all mode to make sure that for every trip, there is a good option. So what is the city of the future when it comes to mobility? Is it, you know, I'm living in a rural area, I jump on, you know, a bus uh, that is electric, and then I get onto a transit system, and then I walk. Like, what is ideally the perfect situation? All paying one fee. <laughs> ah, well, I mean, that's one thing there is... If you go back to what I list of before, a good system isn't just one that allows for every trip, but a trip that's fast or a trip that's reliable, a trip that's safe, a trip that's sustainable, a trip that's cheap. For some of these, we can think about it for a few minutes. We can figure out what it is that we need to do. For environmental sustainability as a first order goal, any kind of mode that is not either human powered or electric powered should be. So we need to move away from gasoline-powered cars. Uh, for air trips, we need to get away from gasoline-powered airplanes if we can. So enter the air taxi, an electric, a souped-up electric drone. But that is environmentally sustainable. An air taxi trip by drone is never going to be cheap. So we also need cheap electrical options. Well, and that suggests public transit, because public transit can operate at scale such that the cost to operate it is relatively low. So we need electric buses, but we also need the OG electric solution, which is the electric subway that can really travel cheaply and sustainably and reliably and quickly, because it can operate in its own right-of-way, even in urban areas. 
We need walking. Walking is the best solution for short trips. But too often, our cities are not optimized for safe, convenient travel by one's feet. And the example of this is, some of your listeners may know, one of the worst intersections in Toronto for pedestrian safety is uh, the intersection of Front and Bay Streets, immediately east of Union Station Rail and north of Union Station Bus. But you've got hundreds of people crowded on a tiny little scrap of pavement. And they, well, people are taking turns, so they people boil over that area into the roadway and they get hurt. So despite the fact that it's the transit hub, it is not optimized for pedestrian travel. Examples like this proliferate. The harder we look at any city, the more we can see areas where there hasn't been systems integration happening. And the result is, is that you get inefficiencies, whether of cost of time or of the environment, or worst of all, of safety. Is there a city that you you point to that is getting it right? Maybe, you know, somewhere in Amsterdam or Norway? There is no perfect city. I suppose the closest, in my experience, to a perfect city would be Tokyo, where it's not that Japanese people don't like driving. Toyota and Honda, Japanese people love their cars as much as anyone does. But Japan seems to have worked out how to do walking and transit and integrating them with cars in a way that it seems to work. Rather than holding up a single exemplar, I would talk about cities that are doing well on certain things. Tokyo is certainly, I will go to bat for Tokyo as the city that's figured out transit the best in the world. I will, uh, you know, Amsterdam is famous worldwide for how it's managed to create a cycling network that serves everybody and very well indeed. So if you look at, if you look at European and Asian cities, you can see lots of things that they are doing better than North American cities. There's really no place in North America, sadly, that we could point to as being an exemplar except parts of New York, and frankly, parts of Toronto. We don't give ourselves enough credit here in Toronto for how we've managed to build a really high-powered bus network. But that's on the strength of the fact that the bus network and the subway network is so beautifully integrated. So we do have a very small thing to teach the world in Canada, but we have a lot more to learn from the world, I would say. It's an area where North American supremacy, North American superiority is not earned. Uh, we need to look abroad. You're focused also on uh, autonomous vehicles. I mean, when do you think that we're going to see those uh, mainstream on the roads? Well, yeah, I guess it depends on who we are. Right now, you can hire a driverless taxi in San Francisco today. You can do that in Austin today. And we don't pay much attention to it here in North America because we're sort of self-absorbed, but you could do it in Shanghai and Beijing today as well. So for some people, driverless cars are already here. But if you're asking, what is it going to take for driverless cars to become a reality in a Canadian city, a Toronto or an Ottawa? Well, there's two matters. There's the technical and there's the political. And as is usually the case, we've got lots of smart people working on the technology and not nearly enough working on the policy. 
The technical problem, the systems, is, as you can see from the headlines out of San Francisco, there are lots of edge cases, uh, but smart people are working on them the, where the, the car slows down, the car comes to a stop, the car doesn't know how to handle emergency responders. These are serious problems. I don't want to minimize them. But one just has to look at the situation and see that these can be fixed and, and no doubt will be in short order. Well, the technical problem for us in Canada is snow. Not for nothing or in America is where, where you see the real growth of automated driving is in the American Southwest where they don't have snow and they largely don't have rain because that's playing the game on easy mode. You can well imagine trying to have a uh, driverless taxi flying the streets of Ottawa during a snowstorm. <laughs> that is a hard problem to solve, but Invest Ottawa through Area XO is working on If Canada has got one area where we are really trying to contribute, it's this. It's training driverless vehicles to handle inclement weather. But as I've hinted, the, the technical problems interest me less than the political problem. There's an obvious path forward to fixing our technical problems, the political ones less so. So that's where I think that decision makers and uh, people of influence in Canada need to pay attention. What challenges are on the horizon when we talk about uh, automated vehicles? I would say the, there's a lot of challenges. But the biggest challenge is one that is it's political or social. And that is, do we want automated driving to be a thing that we own or a thing that we hire? If it's something that we own, it's easy to imagine what that world will be like. You will own a car. I will own a car. Anyone who owns a car today will continue to own a car, but that car will have, let's call it a button. And you press the button and then the car drives itself. You can completely check out. What is the world like if everyone owns a car like that? Well, the world will look much like it does right now, except people spend more time in their cars taking longer trips because they don't need to drive. So the pain of it goes away. You can see all the bad outcomes that are likely in a world like that. Roads are more congested because it's less painful to drive. Sprawl extends further outward because it's less of a pain to make longer trips. People get less exercise because the car can take you more conveniently everywhere you need to go. Imagine instead a world where automated driving is something that we hire. Well, in a world like that, many people don't need to own a car because if ever they want to take a trip, they can just press a button on their phone and a robo-taxi appears very quickly, drives them safely wherever they want to go, at a very low cost. And in a system like that, you could also, many of those trips could be shared because the system could optimize uh, trips wherever possible, uh, especially if there's a price incentive to do a shared trip. Many people could choose to make an even cheaper trip. So that would reduce congestion. I like that world better. It's a world where people aren't burdened with car ownership. Uh, it's a world where people have a choice every time. It's not just take the car because it's there. It's like, do I press the button to call a car? Maybe I'll bike or walk instead. There are many positive outcomes for users, for cities, for everybody in that world. But it's a world that is not going to happen unless we make it happen. That's not a natural outcome. That's not the default path. The default path is 
as people buy cars, they just get better and better at self-driving until they're all all self-driving. If we want a world where there are just fleets of robo-taxis and most people don't feel a need to own their own car, that's something that government needs to create a path towards with taxes on road use, with taxes on deadheading empty vehicles, uh, with better urban design so that you can create areas where fewer trips by car are necessary. I would love to see that world. We can see people starting to put that together. There are car-free neighborhoods that are being built right now. I know of one in Arizona, for instance, but there's also in Utah. There are people that are trying to build up a robo-taxi future, but there aren't enough people thinking about it. And I think that's the first step, is to be aware of this dichotomy and to think more about what kind of world we, as a democratic society, as a country or a city, what kind of world we want. Yeah. And you know what? The cost of ownership of a vehicle is going up. The average price of uh, a new car is over 66000 There are burdens, inflation, and uh, rising interest rates that are making it difficult. So maybe something like a ride-sharing robo-taxi might be ideal because you know when you're not using your car, it's often just sitting near your parking lot or at work uh, or in the garage. So it would make sense. But it's also convincing consumers to get on board and trust that technology too, right? It absolutely is. What also about um, you know data and privacy? You know, as we as its intersection with automated uh, mobility. I mean, data is the new oil. How do we protect our individual privacy and ensure efficient operation of our transport systems? I hear this a lot that data is the new oil, and I always, it always puzzles me because in the early 20th century, if you ask me what can I do with this oil, how do I make money off of it? It's obvious how I can make money off of it by using it to fuel or power of motors. If you ask me how to make money with data, to me, it's always like the underpants gnomes from South Park. I hear about a, you know, like step one is collect data. <laughs> step two, question mark. Step three, profit. It isn't obvious to me that data is so valuable as a lot of people say that it is. I can see how it's valuable for decision makers. It's absolutely valuable in a policymaking context, but to know that your driverless vehicle is more likely to be used between the hours of 9 and 12 than it is a.m. than it is to be used between the hours of 12 and 3 p.m., I would love to know how to make money off of that. If anyone knows, they should send me a message to this podcast because I'd love to hear it. But it's tracking everything. It's tracking where you're going. It knows, you know, I'm stopping at this restaurant to eat. This is, you know, it, it knows exactly where I'm banking, you know, what stops I'm making. So all of that data, I mean, surely could be sold to third parties for a profit. I think it could be. I think people overestimate the value of that data. But let's leave that aside. You are right. It is a problem. Uh, data collection is something that in the mobility space is on the one hand, very useful. I'm a transport planner. I would very much like to know how many people cross an intersection by bike versus how many are crossing it by foot versus how many are crossing it by private car. So I can know how to adjust that intersection to favor some trips more than others. But at the same time, you pointed to a real problem, which is is that it is very easy to, if you know where people's origins and destinations are, that is useful for optimizing a network, 
but it is also so easy to identify individual people and that could create real problems for them. You can imagine an imaginary person who works at Microsoft and then during the middle of the day, they're taking a series of trips over to Meta. Uh, that's something their boss might find very interesting. The person would have a want to keep that private. And we can multiply examples like this endlessly. We've got lots of good reasons to not want other people and strangers to know a lot about how we are moving about. How are we going to keep this safe and private in a world where data is collected? It's going to depend a lot on individual cases, what the system is tracking and how. It's hard to give us a detailed example, but at a high level, the answer is lack of fidelity. You create a system such that you cannot re-identify people because the information is just that it's not that it's not captured, it's kept secret, it's that it's never captured. So imagine a sensor, or if you prefer a camera, that is tracking my license plate. Well, you make that camera one that is powerful enough that it can just identify a license plate, but it's not nearly powerful enough to identify any people. Even with metadata, no, that's just a blob of pixels. I can tell by squint that it is a person, but no more than that. That's one form of privacy by design, making sure that our sensors are powerful enough to catch what we need them to catch and no more than that. Another way to do it is to make sure that the data is never kept that the, this high-fidelity data isn't stored, that it is immediately lost. That way, no one can go back and look for it. We'll lose some robustness of big data sets, but the trade-off is we get more privacy. And that is something that, again and again, we've heard people care immensely about. The trade-off is between more efficiency and more privacy. Many people prefer more privacy. In a democratic system, we have to take that seriously. What about um, you know cybersecurity and hacking concerns? Is that something that we should be worried about? I rephrase that slightly. Are there dangers of bad actors mm. getting into our systems and using them in malicious ways? Absolutely, there are. But that is not a cybersecurity issue. That's a security issue. It's always been the case that there could be bad actors infiltrating our systems and using them for in their own enrichment or using them to create chaos. In the past, we balanced that way. We had security guards, we had padlocks, we had a variety of physical security systems. The more we move online, we need to invest in cybersecurity systems. But the fact that people could bring down a power grid never stopped us from building one. We just made sure that the power grid couldn't be interfered with. The fact that people would interfere with our databases and decision-making systems, we just need to protect those in a similar fashion. The technology is a red hearing. What matters is the security. Well, there's definitely certainly a lot of benefits of improving our transport system, You know, reducing traffic congestion, improving fuel economy, increasing road safety. There's certainly a lot of benefits here. Do you also work on moving transport and freight and improving that besides you know, helping people move more efficiently? Most of our time is spent working on movement of people, but movement of goods is important too. And important of goods is uh, the movement of goods is going to be just as improved by uh, emerging technologies 
as the movement of people. I'm particularly thinking of automated driving here, that if taxi bots are going to be useful innovations in our cities, but well before we have those at scale, I think, especially in Canada, we're going to see trucks operating at scale with automated driving because there is, I won't say there's no shortage, but there are people who are willing to drive buses and move goods in our cities. But the number of people available to operate long haul trucks has been dwindling for decades. And it's a significant problem in Canada, the United States, Australia, even Europe, it's a problem. So Japan, for instance, has just announced this week they're piloting autonomous-only lanes in Hitachi Prefecture in the north. And their avowed reason is precisely because we don't have enough drivers to operate intercity buses. So we are going to have create these lanes and they'll be used for intercity buses, but also the movement of goods. There is a lane that's being built just for the movement of goods between Tokyo and Osaka. I am sure that in North America, we are going to follow suit because there's too much demand for movement of goods and not enough people to do it, that an electric or hydrogen-powered automated truck flying the highways, it's coming and it's going to be coming soon. So what advice do you have for cities and governments and clients that are in the process of you know, reimagining our urban landscapes of the future? Uh, my advice is read my white papers <laughs> on automated drive. No, no, I can't. I mean, people should do that because they're great if I do say so myself. <laughs> well, I, I saw your report, the driverless end game policy and regulation for automated driving. But aside from that rather self-serving advice, let me say, let me give something that's more generally uh, applicable, which is the biggest problem facing our cities right now is there isn't enough housing and it's too hard to get around. Thankfully, there is one solution which will solve both of these problems, which is take a urban transport hub optimized for moving people by transit, whether that's rail and or bus, but also bike, but also walking, and ring it with tall towers so that people are living where the transport is, so that there are many people you build up, but all they need to do is an elevator ride and they're in a transport hub and they can take that to make uh, most any trip that they need to make. So in urbanist circles, this is known as spikeliness. The city of the future is spiky with lots of towers right around transport. As you move away from that hub, uh, slopes downward. There's a lot of regulatory problems to building that, but that's the future. That's what we have to build. How do you handle near distance trips? The answer is hard to generalize. It's going to depend on the city and its regulations, what its residents want it to be. But I can guarantee you it will be a combination of walking and cycling and Yes, driving, especially as we automate the process of driving. So the thing to do is to figure out how to make all of those systems work and work together. That is the job of the 21st century. And that's what we should be applying our attention to. It's what I apply my attention to, me and my colleagues. And we think that's because that's one of the world's toughest challenges, but it's worth addressing. It's worth our time. 
Well, we have to leave it there, Andrew. That has been a great discussion. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you today and to look into the future of sustainable transportation in urban landscapes. Thank you for being on the podcast, and we're grateful to our listeners for tuning in too. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Our New Reality. We're committed to bringing you engaging and informative discussions with business leaders who are transforming the future. Stay tuned for our next conversation and be sure to reach out to us at investottawa.ca with your thoughts and comments. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time though, I'm Petrina Gentile. Stay well.